Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Welcome to this week's interview. If you're here for the first time or the 30th time, I'm glad you're here. I'd love to get some feedback from you on the interviews, and you can do that by going to the podcast platform you use to listen and leave a rating and a comment. That would be greatly appreciated. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and my faithful supporters via Patreon. If you're interested in getting a new single bag or multiple horn bag, or even a mouthpiece pouch, you should check out Messina Covers. David and Erica deliver both exceptional customer service and a superior quality product. They do custom orders as well, and in some really cool color options. Be sure to check them out at messinacovers.net. That's M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S dot net. The Eastman Music Company history may be short compared to some in the industry, but what's impressive is that they've risen to the level of other trusted brands. What you'll find at Eastman is a commitment to excellence and innovation. Eastman Winds have created a line of brass instruments that are becoming commonplace in top orchestras and used by respected artists worldwide. I've been playing the 825 SB flat trumpet since 2013, and I've added since the ECN 422 Shepherd's Crook B flat cornet and the EFG 512 flugelhorn. Eastman also does a great job of recognizing great instruments and designers and knows that it makes great business sense to bring those companies under the umbrella of Eastman rather than to try to start from scratch. Such is the case with SE Shires. Eastman's acquisition of Shires has ensured that the quality and innovation of the Shires instruments continues. Alongside my Eastman instruments, I also play the Shires B-flat CVLA XL trumpet and the Shires number no. 5C trumpet. I'm both fortunate and grateful to be associated with Eastman and to be a dual artist for Eastman and Shires. Please visit EastmanWinds.com and SEShires.com. One last item before we get to today's interview. If you would like to contribute financially to this podcast and support the continued delivery of access to great artists, you can do so starting out as little as $3 per month. There are five tiers of support offered, and there are some cool benefits available to you if you become a subscriber at Patreon. You can see all tiers and benefits by visiting patreon.com slash studio HFL, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, thank you for being here. And now, on with today's interview. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you like this. Yeah, you too. I, uh, let's see, it was the San Antonio ITG. Okay. Was that two years ago? That would have been three years ago. Two or three, yeah. Right. The years are kind of running together. And you did a Bach transcription. Was it one of, or it was an entire uh, unaccompanied cello suite? Right, right. And I sat there thinking, who in the world has the chops to get through this? <laughs> and you did. And not just get through it, but I mean, it was, it was quite spectacular. Well, thank you. It, I started as a transposition project from the, um, um, I was at a horn player friend's house. Uh, she was playing with the Chicago Symphony uh, at the time. And uh, I saw this thing on her stand and it had all these low notes in it. And uh, uh, I said, you know, I, I had just gotten the Met job. And I said, you know, I, I got to get used to reading these low notes. What is that? You know, transposing. And it was the Wendell Haas um, transcription from like 1950 or something okay. of the cello suite. So I started using them for transposition, F, E, E flat. And then 
by the time you're able to play one of them, you, you right. <laughs> pretty much have it memorized anyway, sure. you know. Sure. So I just started kind of performing them sheepishly, hoping there were no cellists around, you know. You know, um, I, I remember somebody actually put out a transcription of the entire, uh, all six suites. And, you know, very accessible to trumpet. You know, they octave displacements, this, that, right. and the other to right. make it work. And... You know, if you look at that and you think, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, there's nowhere to breathe. Right. And then, so then you go and you listen, listen to somebody like Lynn Harrell, who just passed away, or uh, Yo-Yo Ma play, and you're like, oh, that's how you're supposed to phrase that. You know, not everything right. runs together. And I think, um, you know, if you don't have that information <laughs> beforehand, they, they're already difficult. Yeah, I think you just, I look for harmonic breaks. I look for... Like it's like their paragraphs. And I know speaking of the string players, I know the string teachers will have their students listen to singers because th for them to learn, how, because they'll just play. Right. You know, for them to learn phrasing, you know, or breathing. But I'm going to do a formal welcome. Uh, Peter Bond, welcome to my podcast. Okay. P-O-H-F-L. So, you know, we have some similarities in drum corps background. Uh-huh. Uh, and we both play trumpet. And it stops right there. <laughs> I think you're, nah. you're, you're you're mildly more successful than uh, I got lucky at an audition. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, you know what they say: luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? Yep. Sometimes. Um, I tell you, you are you're fun to follow on Facebook. Oh yeah. You're not shy about uh, you know posting. I think some of the a, a lot of people look at that humor as like. What is going on with this guy? There's well, I have, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I have multiple personalities. I use humor a lot, yeah. but I'm also serious about trumpet playing and teaching. And I think there's a lot of really bad information out there that annoys me. Yeah. Well, I'd like to get to that. Um, but first, uh, here's, here's what I'd like to do. There are no set questions, but I'd like for you to just let me know where you are, what you're doing at the moment. Okay. And, you know, and of course, uh, that includes what's going on during this, uh, this pandemic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the routine of the day these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, there is sort of a routine. My dogs wake me up, so there's no sleeping in and, um, I'll take care of them and then I'll come downstairs and I'll do a, like an hour, uh, routine. Then I'll take them for a walk then I'll come back and I'll do another set of practice. Uh, and then maybe, uh, and then maybe do some uh, online projects, whether it's uh, teaching or people have asked me to contribute to big projects. We j I just did a thing, Fanfare for the Common Man, that uh, mm -hmm. Matt Brockman did. And that came out pretty nicely. And then I have some, you know, little home improvement, you know, kind of projects that I do or to de decrease the value of my home before I sell. Um, <laughs> what? I, I look at the trumpets hanging on the wall behind you and I think, doesn't that exponentially increase the value of... <laughs> depends, on, depends on who the buyer is. <laughs> well, how long have you been with the Met? 20, this would be my 28th season. Wow. If, if, if we completed the season. Sure. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's been a long time. My hair was dark when I got the job. <laughs> and well, now... At what point did it turn white? You know, I haven't gone back through the, uh, through the records. Uh, it might have been a... It was probably a performance with Mel Broyles. <laughs> yeah, you've, uh, that's another th aspect of this. Is, I mean, uh, you're a fantastic musician in your own right, but you've also shared the pit and the stage with some oh, yeah. spectacular musicians. 
Yeah, my first day on the job was a recording session. I moved to New York and they said, be at such and such an address at such and such a time, you know, August, whatever. And so I show up and it, it was the um, Manhattan Center. That's what it's called. And it was a recording session for Manon Lesko and they had sent me the music, but I really didn't know opera, you know. I learned my little notes and Pavarotti was standing right behind me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he started singing and it was like, so that's what it's all about, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So it was he and Marilla Franey. So that was my first day on the job. And yeah, just stunning, stunning musicians. And then, you know, colleagues in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all, you know, for some reason, the Met seemed to be a, a real repository of characters, um, more so than, than, than symphonies. I, I don't know why that was, but it seemed to have more than its share of really colorful personalities now are you talking so, in the pit or on the stage in the pit both in the pit well i think both too i mean mm-hmm. you know uh I, i'm not that acquainted the 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 meta is kind of on several levels we have you know the it, there's four levels below the street uh, of of the building you know so we rehearse in the very bottom that's where the orchestra orchestra room is um and then as high as we go or i think of it in this way and then the pit is on what they call a level and the next level up is the stage. And, and those are different um, ecosystems. So the orchestra lives on this pit level where the mm-hmm. locker rooms are and the, the commissary is. And we just mm-hmm. pretty much live there. And every once in a while, we'll have stage work. But the stage is a whole different, whole different world with the, right. uh, the artists and the, and the, the chorus and stage hands and everything. And so... Um, um, yeah, I, I think of it as kind of different ecosystems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, you know, the, the, for anybody to have the 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 guts to go out on stage and sing, that just that just blows my mind. And of course, it, you know, and th- those are a lot of times really colorful people as well. My wife and our and our two youngest boys made a trip to New York City. Oh, I think it was this, uh, it was December twenty sixteen. I think it was, and heard. Uh, Marriage of Figaro. Uh huh. It was spectacular. Yeah. And maybe it's a small band for that. I don't know. Smaller band, sure. Yeah. Um, you you get to the Met, and then you see, oh, this is what it's supposed to be about. I mean, the level of orchestra, spectacular. The level of costuming, the the performers on stage, every aspect of it was just top shelf. Yeah, I think that's what they really that's kind of the hallmark of the Met is, is um, mm-hmm. in all those areas, there's even a bad night. Mm-hmm. It's a very high standard. Yeah. You know, it, and, it as a- you say, it's the costumes, like the, the costumes are insane. Mm-hmm. The, 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 you know, the, the attention to detail and the, you know, when somebody, when you were, you know, they make a band uniform for you. It's made out of the same material that a 19th century bandsman would, and it's all wow. sewn. There's no Velcro. It's like huge. And, they have a wig department. They make all their own wigs. Mm. It's and very, very high level, as you say. So Well, you know, I think the production value, and, and, you know, if you even think about the ticket price, you know, if anybody looks at that ticket price and they looks at, and look and listen to what's going on there, they're like, okay, it's worth every penny. Because, because nobody, like you're saying, you know, even with the band costumes, they're not, they're not cutting corners. They're, they're trying to be as authentic as they possibly can. Right, right. I, I, I thought the, uh, I've recently thought that the uh, marketing people missed an opportunity, you know, uh, uh, by uh, um, 
touting the length of the operas and, and uh, the amount of value for your entertainment dollar, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Philharmonic's done in like hour 45, two hours, you know? Right. Hey, you come to Parsifal, you're there for five hours, man. <laughs> Got a damn wrong six hours. Right. So right. that's value. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's a lot of popcorn too, right? <laughs> Indeed. That would be something if they had popcorn. <clears throat> oh, well. I don't know. Well, that would turn it into a true theatrical or cinematic. That, that would be. Right? That would be. Yeah. <laughs> so 28 years. Um, but you just, you know, you, you mentioned your first performance and standing in front of or sitting in front of uh, Pavarotti. Right. Um, saying you didn't know much about opera. What in the world? prompted you to take an audition for an opera my orchestra folded which what what, what? i was in the i was in the new mexico symphony mm -hmm. uh this was 87 and uh it always parallels you know regional orchestra always always on the brink sure, and sure. they'd stopped paying me you know they ran out of money and i'm going and i had been taking auditions and i'd get close i was in the finals for cleveland and and then utah and pittsburgh and you know um and it was just you know i needed a job so they sent the music and i went to the university of new mexico um record library and listened to rigoletto and you know mm -hmm. all those things and did my homework and went in and you know and just played the audition as best i could and i had no awareness of the um the scope and the grandeur of the of the enterprise i just you know and then the uh, well, so the, and the auditions are blind from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. All right. Even which, the final round. Huh? Even the final round. Yes. I think taking down the screen for the final round is bogus. Mm -hmm. Then why have a screen at all? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. but, um, so they don't know who they've hired until they've selected number 17 or number 43. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you meet the committee, blah, blah, blah. And then I uh, went into the personnel manager's office and he told me how much money I was going to make. And I thought I was a rich, I thought I was just, you know, mm -hmm. I was Midas until I went looking for an apartment. <laughs> and then I and it was like, oh. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So every, everything's relative, you know. Yeah, then you started looking for a second job. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is yeah. Starbucks hiring? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, in, you know, in that 28 years, I'm thinking uh, you've probably seen quite a number of changes, not just in personnel, but you know, is there anything that stands out like the experiences you had in that first few years? How does that compare uh, to the most recent? Well, I was pretty much lost for the first five years. You know, I was just because wow. it's opera. It's a whole different thing. It's got a weird rhythm to it. The The season is weird. The um, the, the work schedule is weird. The, the gig itself is so different than a, a, a symphonic job. Mm -hmm. And the music is... Um, uh, like it's like this um, uh, alternating huge stretches of boredom and absolute terror. And, and, and then there's all kinds of conventions as to how to play things. So a lot of music, especially Italian music, isn't, you don't play it the way it's written. Oh no. You know, it follows the language. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't know that, you know, and so, and then I spent, of course, I think I, I think it was like, it's like a new guy in the Basie band. I, I was coming in early for two years, right? You know, because the conductor goes, bah, and the whole orchestra plays together. Right. And I went, 
How'd they figure that out? <laughs> and it's, and you learn how to do it. And, sure. and then, the, then some of these great conductors have very idiosyncratic technique. Mm -hmm. So um, a fantastic conductor who just passed away, Nello Santi, mm -hmm. real legend in opera circles. But, and, uh, but he has, you know, he has this old, you know, hound dog look and he, he shuffles in and he has, speaks in broken English and he goes, and the orchestra went, but and I went, what happened? <laughs> I mean, they did it perfectly together. Yeah. And it was like a, it was like a fastball just went by me. Boom. Yeah. It was, huh? Strike one. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was like that for five years at least, wow. you know, and my colleagues were super helpful. Mark Gould, um, uh, Jim Pandolfi, Mel Broyles, yeah. all very, you know, supportive and helpful because they know how weird it is. You know, yeah. what a unusual thing it is. Right. And you're I in the dark all the time. That's another I thing. I read sometime, uh, not too long ago, I think it was an interview uh, in print or, or it could have been another, uh, maybe Brass Junkies, um, where you were talking about uh, phrasing uh, mm -hmm. and, and how you were, it was it, uh, you were gonna get tenure or not get tenure and it was like oh. an almost a last minute save. No, it wasn't, yeah, it was my sound. Um, so I came from a, a commercial, you know, drum bugle corps and and um uh big band background i was i was a neanderthal is pretty much what i was and then um and then i had to quit playing because of dental pain and my i torn my chops up and i was a very dysfunctional player mm -hmm. um and then i was working in a factory and uh, my old band director from college uh asked me if i wanted to come to his new school in georgia at georgia state and um you know, get a master's degree and be his graduate assistant, you know, and study with symphony men. And I thought, okay, uh, you know, 10 hours a day in the factory, study with symphony guys, you know, no brainer. And I, um, and I, and my teacher was John Head, who was principal of the symphony mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And he had been a Bill Adams student before Bill Adams was a high note guru. So mm -hmm. way back. Um, but anyway, he turned out to be a fabulous teacher for me. And I had to sort of learn how to play again. Mm -hmm. I had a and and I've kind of been tweaking that ever since. Okay, I'm sorry that that was a huge digression. No, it's all still answering your question. That's great. But, but anyway, um, so I was always trying to figure out how to do this symphony thing to make this sound. Although I I was getting work, I was, you know, and I won an audition. My first audition was New Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, symphony principal trumpet. So I thought, oh, I guess I'm a symphony man now. Um, but I knew there were some, you know, I didn't have proper training and I was going to Chicago uh, regularly to study with uh, Chickowitz, Herseth, Jacobs, even Clevenger. Clevenger was a fabulous teacher. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and then I was always taking different auditions and I was making the finals. I would be like the runner up or something. So that was a good sign. I thought, well, I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I went through a long process with the Philharmonic. Uh, I was like one of two guys maybe three or four times in a row when John Ware retired. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it just never quite worked out. My sound wasn't quite right. I couldn't, you know, and I, I you know, uh, and they gave me every opportunity. They were, they were great. Uh, mm -hmm. Phil Smith and, and Alessi and all those guys, they were wonderful. But um, there was something wrong with my sound production. I couldn't, I couldn't blend with the guys. It was, and, um, and finally they cut me loose. And, and then a, a year later, I get lucky and I get the Met job, but the problem was still there. 
and, and nobody could, I'd gone to these famous teachers and nobody could address it. You know, they, they couldn't, you know, um, and I was going to get, I was going to lose my gig at the Met too. And so instead of running off to Chicago, you know, where I thought, you know, Moses and the stone tablets and everything for brass players had, you know, had taken place. I, I looked around me and Mark Gould and especially Jim Pandolfi, who sat on the other side of me, played nothing like, especially Dolph, did not play like anyone I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, really different, but he sounded fantastic. And so I asked him for help. And, and he, Jim was the total, it was a consummate professional. He never said anything about my playing ever. But um, I asked him and he said, well, since you mentioned it, <laughs> and we went to his apartment and he fixed me in like 20 minutes. It was unbelievable. Well, what, what was the elixir? The elixir was, well, I've, I've since built a, a whole pedagogy around it, superimposing uh, my own ideas, but the elixir is don't blow. Wind and song, no wind. All right? So, and when you think about it, you look at the stage, singers don't take histrionic breaths. Singers don't turn red in the face. You know, they don't do all that crap we do. Use that technique. Mm -hmm. All right. So I take a breath. I support it as if I'm singing. Mm -hmm. And I think about vibration. And I think about projecting vibration, not wind. Okay. And all of a sudden, I, my sound got very, very clear. I could lock up intonation very easily. Mm -hmm. My phrase lengths doubled. Mm -hmm. Not that that was ever an issue. I'm kind mm -hmm. of a big guy. But I, I can play like the first half of the Charlie A2 in one breath. Just because if you go, la, how much air are you using? Right. Almost nothing, all right? So these replace those, mm -hmm. all right? Now, the function here has to be pretty much close to optimal. Mm -hmm. So um, that was pretty much it. Um, uh, so Dolph talked about it in different ways, keeping the chest high. You know, <laughs> he used to say, if you blow, you suck. <laughs> very <laughs> pithy guy you know yeah yeah, but, yeah but anyway and since then i've superimposed um uh literal speech and singing as my models mm -hmm. and of course this is all reinforced by looking at the stage and hearing these singers so you know one of these uh many of these singers can overpower a hundred piece orchestra that is still sound fantastic I, I never understood how the projection worked with that. well Projection is about tone color, mm -hmm. is about harmonic activity. It's not about decibels necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a little part of it, but we're taught to go, right? That's very one dimensional and that's very expressively limiting too. Mm -hmm. So if you do that, you're forced in, first of all, you become a slave to the instrument, mm -hmm. to the intonation tendencies of the instrument. And you have a very small um, expressive range. You know, you got like dynamics, you got vibrato, and uh you know uh and volume you know volume vibrato and that's about it mm -hmm. um whereas if i use vocal models i can sound like all kinds of different things and so you know mozart and gershwin and Mahler and stravinsky can sound like can sound different and you can be like an actor mm -hmm. which i think is a really good thing and it's something we don't hear in, in american orchestra playing anymore mm -hmm. everyone sounds the same as good as they are yeah it's the same. 
it's sort of along that line. I'm, I'm a huge fan and believer in sound before sight. And that encompasses, of course, knowing what you're supposed to sound like before you even look at the music, you know, understanding. Uh, I just think if you, if you try to look at the music and interpret symbols and they have no meaning, well, <laughs> what do you Well, it is do? a separate skill, right? It's computer yeah. language. Yeah. It's, it's abstract symbols. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it has to exist in a context. So oh, sorry, that, I interrupted. No, no, you're, you're fine. Uh, so this, this experience in Pandolfi's uh, apartment, you get back to the pit. Was it then just a sigh of relief? Like, oh my gosh, you know, that was the blend, everything there immediately, or did it take some time? No, it was immediate. Mm -hmm. And was, and I like this, all these light bulbs went on in my head, like, oh, if I do this, I can do that. Or this, why this didn't work. Or, you know, mm -hmm. it was just, um, it, you know, and a lot of it was like, you know, kicking myself in the head going, you, you know, moron, you know, why did, you know, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah. Uh, it enabled me to do well it saved my job okay yeah but also um i was able to make a much more engaging colorful beautiful sound and then i and then for the next 25 years i've been um you know building on that through my teaching sure. um i have a method book coming out from carl fisher that has all this stuff in it um um uh, and, and performing. Mm -hmm. And I still, and I still have, I'm very interested also in, you know, commercial players like, you know, I'll steal from Roger Ingram or, you know, Alan Vizzuti or what, you know, mm -hmm. I'll try that idea, mm -hmm. you know, and, and keep a hand in. And I, and, and I'm interested in, in how these, you know, the pedagogies, you know, what they have in common and what they don't have in common. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I believe there's some, um, there's two, roughly two styles of trumpet playing or two, idioms there's legit playing and then there's commercial and jazz playing just as this you know and of course massive subsections of course just like in singers you have trained singers opera leader choral singers and then everybody else rock and roll broadway right, right. and the trained singers use that maximum resonance and sing unaccompanied mm -hmm. the other people less resonant more compressive they sing on microphone mm -hmm. Not less expressive, it's just less resonant. And I think those are parallels. The, the singers hardly ever cross over, right? If you've ever heard an opera singer sing Broadway, it's like, yeah, I don't think so, you know? It doesn't work, right? Yeah, it's like not cool. And almost no pop singer is dumb enough to try to sing opera. It's just too different. Mm -hmm. It's too weird. Um, some broad, a lot of Broadway singers do have operatic training, but it is a different world. Mm -hmm. But trumpet players have to cross over all the time, especially if you're a freelancer. So what can, if you use these vocal models, you can sound like the right guy in your big band job. And then the next morning, play your Lord Nelson Mass or your Messiah or whatever, and sound like they didn't hire the wrong guy. Right. You know, you can change personalities by using ah uh, or ah, uh, mm -hmm. these different models. You know, like if you listen to Lewis or Dizzy Scat sing, that's exactly how they play, mm -hmm. right? It, it's identical. And, and then likewise the singing, da, 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 dum, bum, ba, bum, ba, 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 bum, bum. you know, and you can't, you can't even execute a bebop head with a legit technique. You can't do it. It has to be a compressive. Right. You can't, ah, uh, you can't do it. Right. <laughs> well, you and, can, but nobody's going to hire you to do well, that. Well, yeah. Sure, and right? yeah. And, and you'll be at like half tempo, mm -hmm. you know, but, but 
using these different models, you can, you can have a multiple, I'll call it multiple personalities, but you can be like an actor and change idioms. Well, here we are at the middle of the interview. Just a reminder for you to visit Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and S.E. Shires for access to top shelf instruments. All three businesses provide exceptional customer service and will help put the right instruments and cases into your hands. Now back to today's interview. I think, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, that's kind of my job uh, here in Indianapolis, you know, is, is uh, I play principal trumpet in, in some regional orchestras uh -huh. and then I do recording sessions and you know you uh, of course now with the regional groups you know there's an awful lot of pops stuff yeah so, you know you wear many hats even on yep. the same program and uh, it's a challenge you know now those that can do it and, and survive it's still a lot of work but uh, you know there there are some younger players that that come and sit next to me sometimes that I'm like have you ever have you ever listened <laughs> to a recording of this? Do you know? Um, and, and I'm, but I, I'm not harsh. I try to be as as uh, uh, encouraging as I can because I know I was I was that person. At one oh yeah, point, you know. And so I'm I'm very careful to encourage and and never tear anybody down. It's we're all on this together. So let's yeah you know yeah. let's make it work together. But sure, um, uh, that, that's a huge aside from where you were headed but well no because because we all face those kind of those kind of things think of the average college student he's got he's playing in the orchestra and the jazz band he's basketball pep band and he's got to play a big solo in the in the wind ensemble and and then he's got a solo recital and he's asked to do all these different things and um you know and maybe maybe his first love is is jazz you know and he's shedding that as well and he has to wear these different hats and you know I, I think you can address it, but so many students just um, like the, the young player you talked about, you sit, they come sit down beside you and what you hear is trumpet lessons. You know, no one wants to hear trumpet lessons, mm -hmm. right? They're, well, they're supposed know, to inform your playing, but right. you know, let the music take over. Right. I want to go I'm, back uh, to when you mentioned John Head and he was working with you. How long was that period where, uh, you know, that trial and tribulation period. What what was going on during that too? What was he trying to do to-, to Okay, well, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, so what I, and, and, and the source of my problem also, um, my chops were overlapping. I had my bottom lip rolled over my bottom teeth. You couldn't tell, I was playing, I looked wow. right. I looked, mm -hmm. you know, I looked just like Rafael Mendez did on the back of the record jacket, right? Because mm -hmm. it has to go straight out. But I was, wow, it was rolled over. And so the chops are overlapping and I'm using mouthpiece pressure to play higher, wind pressure to counter that, mouthpiece pressure, and it's this downward spiral. And I was the high note guy, right? So I'm using appalling pressure and, and effort to play, you know, the blackouts, the head rushes, passing oh out, all, <laughs> all that stuff, right? And, and, and then finally, you know, dental pain. And then um, also... Uh, I have a protruding tooth. Um, so throughout the drum course season, I marched for seven years. I had a cut inside my top lip that would open up. Mm -hmm. And by the championships, I could barely play. And then come September, October, it would close back up. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was like that for years. And then 
So with John, we address that, bringing the jaw forward mm -hmm. a little bit like that and, and how it can feel different. Mm -hmm. and, and I think maybe my college, my undergraduate trumpet teacher tried to help, but I was too dense. I was, I was too much of a meathead, mm -hmm. you know, he couldn't play the school fight song up an octave at the football game. Like I could. So what mm -hmm. could he know? Right. Right. <laughs> that, that was where I was at. Sure. All right. Sure. So finally, you know, reality kicks me in the head and now I'm listening to a teacher. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, and John was, he was fantastic. And so that was the start. And it was, you know, about making my teeth and my lips even ostensibly to, to equalize the mouthpiece pressure. Mm -hmm. Well, when you do that, then you don't need so much pressure. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Oh, you know, and even to this day, I'm still, I'm still working with that. I'm still tweaking that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you know, you, you say how dense you were with, uh, with your undergrad teacher, where was that level of trust with, uh, with John head? I mean, you, did you go to him specifically for this? No, no. Um, no, not at all. I, it was my, my band director. Uh, he had me down. I was, the, I was, the, um, graduate assistant. He was, putting together a jazz program. So I was supposed to be the lead trumpet player. Mm -hmm. I was a very broken guy. And, and, you know, but I went down there and they had seven trumpet teachers listed at the school. I didn't know any of them. Mm -hmm. So I said, this guy's principal in the symphony. He's probably good. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> you know, and plus he was the most powerful contractor in town. I was ah. in the work like that. And I looked like some kind of political uh, Machiavelli or, you know, <laughs> Everybody right. says, where'd this guy come from? Why is he getting all the work? Right. And it was complete. I completely blundered into it, but he turned it, you know, and so, and I also, I had some big breaks. I would get a second chance on a job, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because of John. So he fixed, you know, he fixed me and helped me start a, you know, a, a freelance career down there. I was down there for seven years before mm -hmm. uh, New Mexico. You know, I played, I played everything. You know, I think the, the, Players who have endured some sort of uh, life-altering change make the better teachers or, or more effective teachers, right? I think you're right. You know, right. now you have the empathy when somebody comes in or because you don't go, well, maybe you can go, oh, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, I used to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Try this. It's going to feel like that, you know, and... Uh, so yeah, a lot of my teaching is based on that. And also the psychological insights that I got from Arnold Jacobs and Chikowitz mm -hmm. and those guys. So while I rejected a little bit of the brass pedagogy, I, I found that their, their you know, uh, psychological insights were mm -hmm. incredible. You know. could, could you go back now and reconcile the way that you're thinking with Chikowitz and Jacobs? Can, do, do you see ways that that can all work together now? Maybe. I think it, it's where you direct your attention. Okay, so um, uh, a lot of the brass pedagogy that is popular these days in university springs from tuba players, right? Well, we don't play the tuba, you know, so we don't need that massive wind all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and um, now Chickowitz was also very much about wind and wind patterns and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a, I think the pedagogy is a, is a reaction. It's, you know, against say you're, you know, the, the real tense players that we've are all seen or experienced, the very, very tight, you know, uh, even beginners. 
What do you do with that, right? And so, and, and I think it's, it's been very helpful for a lot of guys in many ways, but it's also limiting a little bit. So uh, I'm saying, um, breathe like a singer, get this to operate like a singer, mm -hmm. all right? Um, now, the singing model only works, here's the, here's the drawback, it only works if this is optimal. Mm -hmm. And I think also a lot of the wind pedagogy is about overcoming dysfunctional embouchures to mm -hmm. one degree or another, mm -hmm. right? So you, you have to address that as well. Right. And that's something a lot of teachers are very scared of. Well, because what experience do they have with that, right? Beyond, right. About, beyond their brass methods class. Exactly. You, know, you don't get that deep into, <laughs> into that stuff. Well even, well, even a trumpet professor will say, well, we, you know, we just use more wind or, mm -hmm. you know, or listen to the records and, you know, and, but if you have a, if you have a faulty technique, you know, like this is my lucky scar that where I put my mouthpiece that I won all state on, and this is where I play, <laughs> you know, you're never going to get better no matter how, or you, you're going to, you're going to hit this ceiling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Trumpet players to get back to your acronym that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. trumpet players all want to play higher, louder, faster, maybe with a better tone, and they hate it when stuff feels different. Yeah. But that's the thing that has to happen, mm -hmm. right? Anything that's going to sound better will feel different. So you have to be ready for that kind of out of control business, you know? Yeah. And so th I think that's what stops a lot of trumpet players' technical development. Musically, you know, mm -hmm. they're, you know, going gangbusters, right? But their technique is holding them back. I, I know all kinds of great musicians trapped in the bodies of terrible trumpet players and you know and they don't accept oh it has to feel a different way you know and and everything everything we do happens in it's like an inch wide and that little hole is like three millimeters right. everything whether you're Herseth or Maynard Ferguson or Maurice Andre or Alan Vizzuti or name your guy Winton right so a teeny tiny change can have huge mm -hmm. you know now, it feels like a big change because we have so many nerve endings in our chops, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you go, I, I did this recently. I went, I moved my mouthpiece up. I went, added five notes to my upper register, completely changed my sound. It was the mm -hmm. thing I got from Roger Ingram's book, by the way, the oh, idea no of setting yeah. in. Uh, but it's like, and I read it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, he, he was answering a question. I forget how he posed it. It was like, how do, um, how do lead trumpet players play so loud on those itty bitty mouthpieces? And I was reading it and I went, yeah, how do they do that? Because I could never do that, you know? And uh, he said, you have to get the meat out of the mouthpiece and have a giant opening, a giant aperture. So they're playing with, he likened it to the horn players, Einsetzen, you know, that right. old technique where they were set inside the bottom lip. Right. You don't see it much in the U.S., but mm -hmm. um, he said, you sit in, you get the chops out of the mouthpiece. Well, that's opposite the way I was trained. Yeah, I have I grew up with a Philip Farkas book where you had the <laughs> circle. It's like the drawstring bag. Yeah. You play higher, you did that. Well, if you're a lead trumpet player, pretty soon you're in trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, and I thought, well, duh, it's so obvious. But at the time, you know, I couldn't make it work. So I thought, well, I, you know, I could be an out of, <laughs> I could be an out of work, you know, high note player now instead of a, you know, a, a well-paid low note guy. Right. But, um, but I found it very interesting. So I thought, well, what if I do that with my symphonic setup? Lo and behold, now I can play the, ver the, the Henza, you know, mm -hmm. and all kinds of wacko stuff that I could never play before. I got mm -hmm. a double C on my mouth, you know, mm -hmm. and this light bulb goes on. I was like, 
this must be what these guys like Vizudian who have this freakish technique, this must right. be what they do, <clears throat> right? And it's the smallest little change. You know, it's I, the tiniest thing. There's a video I watched recently of Maurice Andre. Uh -huh. it, was, it was a beautiful close-up and you could really see. And I want to go back now and look at that because as you described that, I kind of wonder if there's not a little bit of that. I mean, he had, even on the big horns, I mean, he could play up to double C. Yeah. So yeah. easily, you yeah. know, but, but to be able to play like that on all the little horns, I, I wonder, you know, was, did he have some of that going on? Yeah. Well, I think it's worth experimenting with, you know, and then, cause when you think about what it's supposed to be, right. You want, I'll tell you, I, I did a very interesting uh, thing with um, a doctor, a physician here, uh, Brian Benson, who's the uh, head of laryngeal surgery and voice disorders at Hackensack hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, he, before he went to medical school, he had been a Juilliard trumpet player. And that's where I met him 25 years ago. And then he quit music school and went to medical school. And I served as his guinea pig, you know, so he fish cameras down my nose and look at the vocal cords and stuff like that. Um, and I called him up a couple of years ago and I said, you know, you still into the trumpet and stuff. And he said, yeah, come over to my laboratory, you know, after hours, you know, so I went up to his office like 10 o'clock at night, you know, deserted hospital building or, you know, everything's dark. And um, he'd taken a mouthpiece and, drilled a hole at a 45 degree angle and stuck the fiber optic camera in there, the same kind they used to, yeah, you know, yeah. diagnose vocal problems. Right. And then it was hooked up to a, a computer and a TV screen, which would give you an image that's uh, synchronized with the uh, frequency. <clears throat> right. So we could see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I, when, if, when I played with that old technique that I described with mm -hmm. my lips overlapping, I played okay. <laughs> And we listened to it, we watched we listened to it, we watched it on the television. Mm -hmm. Top lip is moving, bottom lip is like a stone wall. Wow. No vibration, whatever. And when I did this, again, it's very tiny. It's like mm -hmm. less than you know, a millimeter. All of a sudden, we hear a lot more harmonic activity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can hear it on the I microphone. Heard it. it was but also we looked on the television, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like Holy crap, I'm like an oboist who had only one reed working, mm. mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so it's about getting both reeds happening and the implications for every aspect of playing, whether it's tone or range or whatever, or response, you can mm -hmm. tongue and, and the, the chops will jump, you know, and you can play mm -hmm. as soft and um, delicately as any oboe or um, mm -hmm. uh, flute player. Uh, it was huge. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, and that made me a little more fearless as a teacher about saying, try this thing. I think it might work, mm -hmm. you know, but a, a lot of guys do that. So um, it, it's an interesting thing in it, to mess with. Yeah. And then you, you look, uh, look at a lot of uh, crazy um, methods like, uh, you know, the uh, um, Cad Anderson tw 20 minute long G. Well, you, you know how you're supposed to play that, right? No, no. I There's don't a know. technique to that. Your teeth are supposed to be touching. Oh, right, right. Right. And then you play like super soft. That's what you're supposed to get. It's mm -hmm. just like a subtone. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, you, I did that for like two days and all of a sudden my range went up. Really? Yeah. And I went, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Well, it's ingenious. It's the same thing. Because your teeth are together, you can't roll your lip over them. You cannot overlap your oh, chops right. you have it forces you to create 
what is probably your personal optimal embouchure. Mm -hmm. Now you don't, you don't play like that, you know, with the teeth together, you go back to mm -hmm. your normal way of playing, but mm -hmm. it kind of trains these muscles, right? And you have to have an aperture in the middle. And the fact that you're playing so soft, you can't hurt yourself. Right. So it's very ingenious that way. And, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of these kind of crazy methods are all going for the same thing to try to get both reads happening mm -hmm. or playing upstream. Well, if you bring the lip out, it feels like you're blowing up. You're exposing that inner read. I think they're all going the same place. Mm -hmm. And guys like Maurice Andre, or, um, uh, or I was just talking to somebody about Maynard Ferguson earlier. Uh, I think he was an alien, but everybody else. Well, you know. I, I saw that was another post you yeah. just oh. about that. Well, yesterday was his birthday. Yeah, right. And uh, of course, a lot of tributes uh, to Star Wars, but I think most trumpet players understand uh, really, we should have been celebrating Maynard. Well, we, we, we celebrated Star Wars because we can't play any Maynard stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've certainly all tried, right? But of course. So, okay, let, now let's think about that. You know, going back to the first time you picked up a uh, brass instrument, was it a bugle or was it a trumpet? What was the it was a trumpet by about three months. So and pretty close together. Is that the embouchure? I mean, you just kind of, that's where you started? Yeah, yeah. And you had success with high notes and that. Was I had reasonable success. The only thing that I did right instinctively was my articulation, mm. which, which I just tongued like I speak. Ta, 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 ta. Well, it turns out that's anchor tonguing, you know, mm. ta, 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 using a flat part of your tongue. And that's what enabled me, even with a dysfunctional embouchure, to get into the high register. And that became my ticket mm. in the drum corps. And it got me into college. I could play loud and high all day. Mm -hmm. And that got me into school, even though I read music at a junior high school level, you know, because <laughs> the drum corps, they, it was rote teaching. Right. You know, right. or, you know, or we made pretenses of reading, you know, music, but you just, you learn your little chart and then it's all, you know, memorized. Right. Um, and nobody really knew what they were doing pedagogically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I had that armature for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the tonguing was a, you know, and I, I still articulate that way now, but it, it's, um, because uh, I can always do stunt things, even with the bad embouchure. <laughs> you know, lip trills, that's because, well, first of all, my lip was rolled over my teeth, my tongue, and I go, ooey, ooey, makes contact with my lip, you know, or in the high register, the, the, tongue, the tongue arch in the front acts like a venturi. Right. You know, and you, you get, you change wind speed, but I could always do crap like that. Mm -hmm. And so, and because other guys couldn't, I figured I was on the right track. I was doing the right thing. Right. Even, you know, so I could do stuff like that, but I couldn't get through the Haydn trumpet concerto. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't reconcile. Well, I, I just told myself, well, I don't want to play the Haydn trumpet concerto. Right. I want to play in Maynard's band. Yeah. But I went, you know, um, uh, anyway, so I had, I had just enough success to not be interested in changing or finding a, a better way of playing. Mm -hmm. Or you play the high G, you know, and you say, oh, I've got it. You know, that, this must mm -hmm. be the way. And not realizing there are numerous ways to play the high G or yeah. whatever it right. is. And I, I, did, and I didn't know that because there, I wasn't surrounded by a lot of really, you know, excellent players that had different techniques until much later on. Mm -hmm. So and you could say, yeah. Early influences. Uh, did, did you grow up listening to country and Western or were you listening to Al Hurt? Um, a little bit of Al Hurt, 
My dad went to a garage. My dad was kind of a hi-fi buff. So this is like the 50s, 60s. I think, I think, I don't know this for a fact, and he's passed away now. I think he went to a garage sale and bought like 300 classical records. And it was just a hodgepodge. And mostly Philadelphia Orchestra, Columbia Symphony. Um, And I, and I listened to a lot of that, a lot of Boston Pops, Mm -hmm. which was very cool. uh, Because Fiedler, Gatala. You know, and uh, and they play with great style. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this day, that those are my favorite Gershwin recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I listened to a lot of that stuff, and then um, uh, some early rock and roll, Led Zeppelin and Santana stuff. And then, sad to say, there were probably three years or four years I listened to almost nothing but drum and bugle corps records. I was like, I was so into that. It's okay. You know what? I mean, we all had. But you well, go, not all you, of us, but we, all of us who were part of core, I think, went through that phase. Yeah, it's a, it's like a, this is a loaded word, but it was almost like a cult, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just sucks you in, and and it was my whole life for years and years, mm-hmm. and um, f- and it has very good things and not so good things. <laughs> so um, and so if you, you know go, my ex-wife too, right? Is that what you're trying to say? Go, ooh, ouch! <laughs> just kidding. But if you I go mean, back and listen. Go back and listen to any of those old records. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, but the GE scores were off the charts, right? <laughs> well, there was something about hearing that stuff live. Oh yeah, it was very exciting. It was like going like going to the drag strip, you know. <laughs> yeah. That that tearing sound right. was really thrilling. I wouldn't call it music, but it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, what core were you in, or cores? Phantom Regiment. No kidding. Well, that was my hometown. So wow. Rockford, you in those days, you marched in your hometown corps. Mm-hmm. So, and when I started, uh, was I first went to rehearsal on like fall of '68, mm-hmm. and they were god awful. I mean, <laughs> you can't imagine. And then I left. I had a couple years out. I rejoined in '71 and went to '77. And then by '77, they were you know. Um, in the top ranks, but even now you listen to a recording of that stuff and it's just <laughs> grisly, you know. Um, do you still go to shows? Do you still appreciate uh, no. activity? No, no, I, I don't like what it's become. I, I went to a show a couple of years ago and I didn't like it at all. It has evolved into, uh, well, I, I don't consider it drum and bugle corps anymore. No, it's not. No, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's like a, a theatrical performance art project is what it is. And it's completely subjective. You know, you know, you could, any number of the like top 10 course, I, I, you could call a winner, but whoever has the, the, the design that is, that is deemed chic, you know, they'll be the winners. Now the achievements of the kids, unbelievable what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I couldn't even get into one of those cores probably when I was a, you know, a kid, the way they move and play. And a lot of them are making beautiful sounds, you know, mm-hmm. but they're not allowed to finish a phrase. If you hear eight bars of a tune, that's like, whoa. So visual yeah. dictates everything. And I just, yeah. not well, for me. And, you know, I will say that the pedagogy is better than when we were. Oh, in, absolutely. By, by far. And of course, now that they're fully chromatic, you know, they can do, they can do more. But, yeah. Uh, um, so I uh, want to ask, um, I want to go back. You, you said something earlier. Uh, Sergey, I think, is one of my favorites, not only to listen to, but to watch. 
just from a model of efficiency. He's the, he's the uh, Heifetz of the trumpet. It's unbelievable. Right. He's probably the most efficient player. And there, you know, there's a couple other guys. Um, well, the Zuti. Well, I was going to say, um, in that idiom, uh, um, Ruben Simayo. Oh, yeah. Acho Flores. Yeah. We've got these guys. And, and I, I think, I think um, Sergey is like way up here. But I've heard them all live. Mm-hmm. And they're the real deal. I mean, yeah. that's not recording studio magic. That's like they go out in front of people and do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And they're not, and it's interesting, they're not products of American pedagogy. Right. Well, you know, the first time my wife, who's a violinist, the first time she huh? heard, heard Sergei, she's like, uh, he's, he's trained by a violinist. He sounds like a violinist, you know, and it's, it's interesting to hear that perspective and you start to listen to the way they phrase. Yep. Uh, and it's just... Um, to go back to what you were saying earlier, it's not a musician trying to fight their way uh, through the trumpet. Right. right. Or it's, it's not, just, it's not pedagogy dictating the way he plays. Yeah. It's the other way around. Yeah. Right. So, um, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he says he practices only um, uh, repertoire. Yeah. Doesn't... I asked him that. I, when yeah. I, okay. When I All right. Him, I said, you know, what do you, what do you practice? And he may have answered that in another interview, but um you know, he doesn't do Arvin's. He, he practices yeah. what's in front of him for the day. And I think, you know, I wonder, I could have followed up and said, okay, so do you do, uh, do your own, design your own exercises uh, to work on certain things? But uh, I, I don't know. I think uh, whatever he does obviously works beautifully. And I, and Tina Helseth is another one, I think, uh-huh. plays beautifully. Yeah. Uh, very efficient. Uh, in Allison Balsam. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, they're, they're both fantastic, but, uh, uh, I think Nakarakov is at, at this absolutely astonishing level. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's a, I, as you say, it's a great lesson to watch him, mm-hmm. you know, and then go home and look in the mirror, you know, now he's, he's got that, he's got that funky posture because of an, you know, an injury that he suffered. Yeah. Um, so it was, he was in an auto auto accident, I believe. Yeah. But you know, it's like, uh, along that line. Right. How many people, how many videos have we seen since this pandemic started of, you know, trumpet players putting themselves out there and bravo to them. I've not gotten brave enough to do that yet. But have you seen how many funky embouchures off to the side, point in different directions? But the, sure. sound, but the sounds they produce. Yeah, I'm in New York. I'm, you know, I'm surrounded by all kinds of uh, peculiar. I had a student coming to me. And he's going, you know, I think I sound better if I, you know move off to the side. And I said, then do it. You know, I, you know, he was worried that and I sent him a picture of I think John Faddis and, um, and uh, uh, Byron Stripling and, you know, John Faddis from the front looks terrible. Right. right? right. <laughs> well, Maynard. You yeah. Know, you know, and, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, I wonder how many band directors hated that uh, their trumpet players worshiped him because it wasn't a textbook embouchure. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think most most band directors are just grateful that they, that the kid can make a sound that you know <laughs> is reasonably in tune, right. and right. you know they're you know or, or doesn't you know completely uh, wipe out the clarinet section. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's wonderful to, to watch these guys and learn. And I, I think I think a lot of a lot of us are hamstrung by pedagogy. 
so-and-so says to do this, to breathe like this, to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think we should, I like, I like to say, articulate like you speak, breathe like you sing, mm -hmm. um, and release the note like you're going to sing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's, I, and just those kind of, those rules of thumb, you can't go far wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, like, I, I like to tell the kids or the kid comes to me, and I say, you know how a trumpet works? You're like, trick question, right? You know, okay. So you, you set up this, you know, sound right. pressure wave with the buzzing of the lips goes through the pipes. Here's the, when it gets here, it doesn't go out the bell. It's reflected back. You're not blowing sound through the instrument, right? You know, of course, in a reinforced standing wave and blah, blah, blah. Right. But the point is we don't blow sound through the instrument. Sound travels at 600, 768 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. How fast can you blow wind? I don't think pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, and once you realize that, all you, that all you have to do is light this up and in turn light that up, mm -hmm. um, it can free you, you know, mm -hmm. A lot. Oh, I'm just gonna. So I think about making my sound inside my mouth. La 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 la. Da, 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 da. And the sound just boom, fires out of the horn. The degree, the degree to which I try to blow it through the horn, I shoot myself in the foot. I, I cut my projection, my tone. You know, uh, it gets a little more harsh and strident. Now I did that for many years, but um, uh, uh realizing you could just make it here until high c high c there's no more reflection and now the trumpet's a megaphone and mm -hmm. that's when you have to go into turbo mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. which which is where manor lived <laughs> yeah to get back to that yeah. but you know he could play anything oh. peter i get a real sense that you enjoy teaching i do <laughs> i mean your enthusiasm just well, because, because I was such a messed up player and i had to figure a lot of stuff out and i was searching so i, I remained interested in how people think and how we can yeah. do it in different ways of, of yeah. getting, uh, getting the, you know, uh, getting to the, um, um, the goal, you know, whatever it is, whether it's to play, I want to be a commercial high note guy. I want to be a symphony man, whatever. Mm. Um, yeah. It, it's a fascinating topic to me. And, and, um, and I've gone down a lot of um, blind alleys or limited pedagogies, you know, so who um, comes to you for, for lessons? Are they, are they mostly orchestral? No, I get all kinds of guys. I get mm -hmm. commercial guys, jazz players come to me, orchestral guys. Mm -hmm. um, I, see some, I see some guys who do Latin high note work. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't even, they, their chops don't even work below high C. Right. And then it's like, but, you know, it, it fascinates me. So uh, you know, I do see a, a lot of guys, jazz and commercial guys, as well as symphony guys and I, I like to have a kind of a foot in both camps and i like to go to jobs and watch the guys in their environment mm -hmm. and see what they're doing and what they have to do mm -hmm. you know to, you know maybe i can give them some advice that help them do their job not to sound like me but right. to sound like the way they want to sound mm -hmm. you know or well, that's if an interesting perspective yeah. you know you wonder how many teachers would be that uh uh, would have that perspective, right? Not to try to model and sound exactly like me. That's, that's a unique perspective that you're providing right there. I, I can't speak to that. I don't know if it's unique or not, but yeah. And I think even Chikowitz used to, used to say that, you know, with his very, very careful 
um, uh, uh, disciplined approach, um, he said, you won't sound like me. You're going to sound like you. You know, so it's not like you're giving up your personality. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, I do think to nitpick a little bit on that pedagogy, I do think there is a, there is a kind of an unfortunate, not uniformity, anonymity mm. in playing. You know, you remember when, when you, would, you could listen to records, you'd listen to an orchestra, and you hear the first trumpet player, and you go, oh, that's Boston Symphony. Yeah. Oh, that's the Philharmonic. Right. You can't do that anymore. And that because that personality, that personality is gone. Those guys, those guys uh, wouldn't get through an audition round. Now they would offend somebody on the committee, mm-hmm. and they would be cut because there's too much personalities. I call mm-hmm. it. I call it the, when students come to me for audition advice. I say you have to. You have to uh, uh, be. Uh, you have to present an FM 100 audition middle of the road, offend no one, show almost no personality. Wow. Like no perfect, you know, because mm-hmm. if you hang it out there, it's going to bug somebody. Because the panel is made up of violinists and clarinet players and, you know, and even, even when I've sat on audition committees where I work, mm-hmm. we have nine or 11, I forget, odd number, you know, and, and we'll, um, after the audition, we're walking out, perhaps, and uh, I'll be talking to one of my colleagues, and she'll say, "Oh, I voted for so and so," and I'm like, "Do we? Are we in the same orchestra? Do we? What?" And so, and and this was a really fine musician. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know, Im- imagine how far that goes. You know, or I've had. Never mind. I could go on, but. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but anyways, uh, so uh, I've lost my train of thought a little bit. But yeah, I think there's, you know, it's, it's both good and bad. So, I mean, th- I think the level of playing is super high, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But we're missing some of the reason that people come to live, live performances. Mm-hmm. And it's not, like, it's not like going to the stock car races and hoping for a crash, you know. It's, but you, you want to hear personality. How many more tickets would that sell if you build it that way? Abs, abs, yeah, well, that's a, that's a thought, right? Marketing gets on that right away. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, natural trumpet, are, are you trying to work that into any repertoire? Is that becoming a requirement for? No, but I have one back here. Um, yeah, it fascinates me. Um, I have a couple of students now who also double on natural trumpet and one former student's very accomplished, but, um, and I took that course, um, uh, where you build your own natural trumpet. Oh yeah. I did that too. Down in Bloomington. Yeah. And, um, and I've performed on it a couple of times, mm-hmm. but it gives you, it gives you insight into, you know, first of all, you know, what those guys had to do. You get great respect for the, both Absolutely. the players and the builders, <laughs> you know, but, um, uh, and it gives you insight into performance um, uh, practice and also, you know, what, what, what theoretically should it have sounded like, but also it, it only helps play the, the regular instrument. Yeah. It makes yeah. you so much, uh, much more accurate. The first time I played one, I, I realized, oh, that's, what the compo- that's why the composer marked this dynamic. This is the color they were envisioning or yeah. hearing. And right. It really does change your perspective on 
on classical repertoire uh, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I really appreciate you know the chance to sit and and sure, listen. it's a pleasure. I, you know, this is the the first one, and like I said, the first video one that we've done, and I I love this format because I feel like I just had a lesson. Ah. You know, and uh, which I appreciate. I mean, this this well, it's just idea. It's just ideas, you know. And so, yeah, going. Hey, there's an idea, and then you, we're all our own teacher anyway. But I appreciate uh, your time. And yeah, it was a thank, pleasure. Thank you for sharing everything on that. You know, once this gets done, if if I ever make it to New York, I'll uh, I'll throw something into the pit and hope you're there to catch it. <laughs> so, uh, Make sure it's not rotten fruit. Well, here we are at the end of today's interview. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll come back for more. I'd also like to thank again the sponsors of this podcast, Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and S.E. Shires. Their support helps me to continue to deliver these interviews on a regular basis. Be sure to check out their products at MessinaCovers.net, EastmanWinds.com, and SEShires.com. And one final reminder that you too can be a supporter of this podcast by subscribing at Patreon.com slash StudioHFL. Thanks again. Now go practice.